Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Welcome to The Roy Green Show on this Saturday. Great story on Global News uh, day before yesterday. Canada is flattening the coronavirus curve, and that's what we want to hear. That's what we want to know. And uh, that's, quote, good news, end quote, um, was the response from Dr. Stephen Hoffman, director of the Global Strategy Lab and a professor of global health law and political science at York University. He's quoted in the Global News story, and Professor Hoffman been very good to us with his time. Uh, professor Hoffman, good to have you back on the program. That is good news, isn't it? It is. It's very good news. Can you provide a perspective to that? Sure. So um, what we've been looking for for quite some time with all of these public health measures and physical distancing is we wanted to slow down the spread of this outbreak. It's not about stopping it because this virus will continue to transmit for quite some time, but it was about slowing it down so that we don't have more cases of COVID-19 in Canada than our healthcare system can deal with. And so that's why it's all about reducing just the number of opportunities that the virus will have to transmit from person to person. And so the fact that just recently the data has been showing that the speed of transmission is going down, that's a good sign because it means that all these measures and these sacrifices that people are making are actually bearing fruit. And ideally, that points towards the fact that this government response, it's unprecedented, it's affecting all of us, but it's working. And so hopefully this highlights a path towards uh, a well, better days in the future when we're able to go towards back to being uh, back to normal. Whatever normal may mean. Well, that's right. Uh, I think that um, for people who are hoping for a very uh, quick return to normal, uh, it's unlikely to happen. And that's just because when you look at the Canadian population right now, we're basically as susceptible to this virus now as we were a couple months ago when no one in the community had immunity because there's still very few Canadians who have actually had uh, COVID-19. And even still, we don't know how long those people who have had it, how long they have immunity to it, to getting it again, for example. Hopefully for a very long time, they Mm -hmm. have that immunity. And so as a result, what that means is if we were simply to lift all the measures right away, we would just go back to having the kind of spread, a very exponentially fast spread of COVID-19 as we were seeing uh, even just a couple weeks ago. And that's not the place where we want to be. So what I've read and heard and seen over the last few days, last week or so, particularly in the last few days, have been uh, stories, evidence uh, brought forward by both uh, doctors, epidemiologists, and politicians. And and that is that the modeling um, some weeks ago or a month or two ago suggested a more steep upward graph of COVID-19 cases than we have seen. So what's the explanation for that? Is it questionable modeling, or did the physical distancing uh, really work out, or is it a combination of the two? It's physical distancing uh, is working, and it's not just physical distancing. It's the scale-up of testing that we're starting to see. Uh, It's the whole series of actions that uh, government, public health authorities, and citizens across Canada are taking. It's paying off. I think that uh, when it's clear that when the epidemiologic models are being prepared, they're being prepared under various different kinds of assumptions. And so that's why when public health authorities are conveying those numbers, they always convey it 
explaining that, okay, if we do nothing, this is what the likely outcome would be. If we do everything, this is the outcome. If we do some things, this is what it will be. And as a result, I think what we're seeing is very much in line with what we were hoping to see in light of the extraordinary efforts that all of us are taking in order to limit the opportunities for this virus to spread. So it's definitely, an, it's not an indication of bad modeling, which itself is, is really a matter of guessing based on different parameters and things that we do know about the virus. But actually, it's, uh, this, is, this is a good news story in light of all the sacrifices that Canadians have been making over the last few weeks. When I look at the statistics, the numbers uh, for this country and other countries around the world, but particularly when I look at the statistics and the numbers for Canada today, and these are about an hour or so old, uh, total cases 32,412, new cases 485, total deaths 1,346, new deaths 36, uh, total recovered 10,543, and active cases 20,523. Those are numbers to me. And they're concerning numbers, but they're numbers. Would you interpret for all of us, please, what those numbers indicate to you? Well, those numbers are definitely an underestimate of the spread of COVID-19 in our country. There's still so many people who, when they have symptoms, if they're mild, they're being asked to stay at home and isolate as opposed to getting tested. And so those people who might have had it, they never come up in the official statistics. So what we know is that that's sort of the minimum number of cases. But we also know that in Canada, we've had it uh, less badly than many other countries. And so what we'd say is we're earlier in the outbreak than many other countries. And so I know that the, still there's thousands of Canadians who've been affected. Many have died. But the, the good news is that because we're earlier in the outbreak, we're able to look to other countries to look to what to do as well as what not to do. And that comes into play also when thinking about lifting some of these restrictions, right? Because as we've had success with physical distancing, it might soon in the weeks ahead allow the government to start to think about which kinds of protective layers can we peel off, whereas which ones do we need to keep in place? We're going to be able to look to other countries to see and, and learn from in order to do it best in Canada. We're very lucky that our outbreak is a bit behind uh, where other countries are finding themselves in right now. Professor Hoffman, you're involved in global law. Um, you are a lawyer, global lawyer. Uh, is China, there's a lot of talk about this, and a lot of, um, a lot of debate going back and forth. Is China in violation of international law? And what are your thoughts on the increasing statements, including from former Canadian Federal Solicitor General Erwin Kotler, that Canada should take Magnitsky law-type action against Chinese officials who delayed for days to inform the world of the outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan. What are your thoughts? Well, there's, there's unfortunately many countries right now that are in violation of international law, specifically the International Health Regulations, which is that legally binding treaty that governs how 195 countries are supposed to respond to outbreaks like this one. China is likely violating it because of the delays in reporting about COVID-19 in January. Uh, but other countries, dozens of countries like the United States and Australia, are also breaking it by imposing travel restrictions against targeted countries, uh, as opposed to what Canada's done, which is having travel restrictions against every country, essentially, by having the travel ban to our country. Uh, what this highlights is that we don't have a very strong system of global governance in order to respond to these kind of pandemics. 
when it comes to infectious diseases, we're only as strong as everyone else. And so that means we really need to take a global look. And so I, I think that we can look to the law for some things. Um, and so, of course, uh, former Attorney General, Minister of Justice, Erwin uh, Kotler, is calling to hold individual Chinese leaders accountable. I would personally say that that kind of um, tool is something we should look at after the pandemic. And this is really the time where we need to work together. We need to work with China. We need to work with every country in the world. We need to coordinate through the World Health Organization. This is when we need to support this kind of multilateral action. After the outbreak is when we should take a look at how we could have done it better and see whether anyone does need to be held accountable for anything that didn't go as good as it should have. Mr. Kotler is going to be a guest on uh, this program tomorrow. I have one one more question for you. Try to squeeze it in in the 45 seconds we have left. In the United States, a lot of pressure by the president and some governors to open up their economy, and uh, clearly the economic realities are in, in our faces. We need to get our economies going again. Now, how we do it is what's most significant. What is your sense of how the United States and the president of the United States is approaching this? Well, the United States, uh, quickly, has been one of the least effective countries in responding to this outbreak. Partially, it's just the way their system is designed for public health. Um, but they, I think when we in Canada are, are looking to how we should be responding, I think many of the things that we see in the United States are examples of things that we should not be doing. So I, I do hope for us and for everyone in the U.S. that the United States does continue to hold the course. Uh, and... Uh, keep on these measures uh, and not lift them too early because then they'll just be back to the same position they were um, just a couple weeks ago. Moshe Lander is an economist, an economics professor at Concordia University in Montreal. He's an op-ed writer as well. And uh, first opportunity to speak with Professor Lander on this program. And thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, The Bank of Canada says the economic downturn because of the pandemic will be the worst on record. When I hear that, I start to pay particular attention, Professor Lander. What do you you hear when you hear that? Worst uh, worst on record. And please uh, tell us as as well, in layman's terminology, what are we looking at? Sure. So, you know, I I think for most of us that don't have experience with terrible, terrible recessions, the, the historical thing that we know is the Great Depression. And we just know that... That was something that went really wrong with the economy, and it was precipitated by a, a stock market collapse. Uh, on, on whatever level we understand the, the technicalities, that's kind of what I think all of us know. Um, this is the comparison point, that we, we've seen an economy that's gone into complete freefall, and the difference between here and there is that this is being caused by a virus that's spread around the world. And so it's not contained to one country. It's not contained to one industry even. It's just every economy is almost simultaneously just shut down. So we we really don't have anything to kind of compare it to other than that depression. But even there, it's kind of apples to oranges. When you talk about the fact that so many countries are involved, uh, the whole world really is involved, engaged in suffering from this, I start to uh, wonder, and there's been a lot of conjecture on this, it's certainly starting, about what we're going to see at the other end, whether countries are going to be uh, cooperative with one another, recognize that there is an international aspect of this, there are trade deals, there are economic uh, priorities, uh, economies have to be protected and pushed forward. Do you think we're going to have a cooperative reality, or do you have concern that it's going to be uh, us first, and wherever you guys come in, that's where you come in? 
I, I, I think we were seeing that even before the pandemic began, and I think we're kind of seeing it go on right now where, you know, you even see within, say, the U.S. itself, uh, states competing with other states to get their hands on scarce medical supplies and masks and mm-hmm. things like that. that you know, a, a lot of this could be um, minimized if uh, there was more of an international approach to uh, fiscal stimulus and how to try and kind of keep the economies uh, chugging along. So I already think that we've seen a little bit of that drawbridge coming up and that, uh, you know, Canada takes care of Canada first. The, the problem, of course, is that uh, open borders is actually an economically good thing. Uh, and while it delivers tremendous benefits, this, unfortunately, is one of the cost sides of it, is that when economies become more interlinked, uh, if something goes wrong, that kind of reverberates through the economies that it trades with. Uh, I, I think we might focus on the bad side of it rather than the good side. So if I, uh, after you talked about open borders, if I close them for a moment and just look at our country and our economy and our regional reality, and, and you're right, I mean, we we had, we we had still have regional issues in Canada, the the uh, the whole business about east versus west or central canada and the and the, and the fallout from the october 21st election none of that's gone away it's still there it's still a fact of life and it's going to reappear but if if i can set that i've almost talked myself into a corner here and i don't like to do that <laughs> that's not my that's not what i should be doing but uh look if if the restrictions and the pandemic countermeasures remain in effect for a protracted period in this country, within our borders, given what we're facing, given the challenge that we have regionally, uh, what's in store for us? Yeah, you know what? What's in store for us is a slower return to uh, the high standard of living that we were accustomed to even just a month ago. So, you know, the the easiest analogy that I could give is that whenever you restrict anybody, a human uh, mobility, uh, flexibility, uh, you know, the tiniest shock can, can knock them over, right? So, you know, if I come up to you and I give you a shove, uh, you're probably going to be able to withstand me shoving you. But if I tell you, you know, tie one hand behind your back and tie your legs together and I shove you, there's a good chance you're going down. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it has nothing to do with my strength. It's your limited flexibility. So it's the same thing within an economy. That When you start to tie down the economy with closed borders and interregional issues, uh, you're limiting its flexibility. And so when a shock comes along in the future, even if it's just localized on Canada, it's going to be much harder for us to dig our way out of it. It's always been bizarre, hasn't it, that in this country we actually set barriers to our interprovincial trade, that we actually lay obstacles, uh, uh, um, chicanes in our own way? It's, it's crazy. It, it, there's, there's a lot of academic studies out there that show that it's almost easier for a province to trade with its neighboring state in the U.S. than it is to trade with its neighboring province within Canada. So it's almost like it's, uh, we're intentionally trying to um, kind of screw each, uh, each other with uh, barriers and these kind of hidden sorts of uh, distortions that make it difficult to, to make it one unified country. What advice would you have? What advice do you have for the federal government and the provinces uh, on on how to really deal with what we're facing? The reality is the reality. We, we can't escape this. And I, I wonder, by the way, whether uh, the majority of people really understand, and I'm not talking down to anybody, but really understand that initiatives like the 75% wage subsidy this isn't we're not reaching into cash reserves for this we're, we're borrowing we don't have any cash reserves we're broke 
uh, we're running a 700. I know I, I, I get an argument with, with, with economists and bankers, but I'm just, I'm just the guy on the street corner. Um, but we, we have $700 billion national debt. We have provincial debt. Uh, a lot of people think that this is just money that's coming out of our bank account. It isn't. So what advice do you have? Well, at least as far as the debt goes, I'd caution everybody to be aware that, you know, we're, we're all of us probably have some debt in our life. As long as our income is growing faster than our debt is growing, that debt uh-huh. becomes less and less significant over time. So really the issue is not, you know, the $700 billion or how much money we're, we're pumping into wage subsidies and things like that. It's going to be, can we recover to a point where we can see fast economic growth in this country that makes that debt much more manageable. So uh, in regard to the first part of your question, I, I think the thing that we need to see is um, Canada has kind of splintered politically where you have West versus East, and even if not West versus East, it's provinces versus the federal government. And I, I think that, you know, without getting too handholdy here, everybody needs to kind of approach this, that we're all in this together. It's one of those hashtag phrases that everybody likes. Uh, we need to kind of approach this where Jason Kennedy has to get along with uh, with the prime minister and, and Doug Ford has to stop uh, antagonizing the federal government as well. And there needs to be some sort of unified approach to how do we deal with this as a country and how do we push for open borders and a return to free trade and uh, that type of benefit that we were receiving for the last half century uh, when this is done. I can guarantee you the emails are already coming in saying... It's Justin Trudeau who's antagonizing Doug Ford. I can guarantee you those emails are coming in, Professor Lander. We are fractured, and I say that, you know, there's a little, there's a sort of a tinge of humor in, in that. Uh, it, sort it, of, it takes two to tango, we'll say. So. <laughs> it is. But, we, but it, is, it is a reality. We have people who are whose job really should be to pragmatically manage the affairs of the nation and the provinces. They're more, sometimes more interested in going at each other and uh you know it's 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 politics um what i want to ask one final question for you is how would you say we should or in an orderly and productive manner restart our economy i i think what we're going to see is probably that it's going to be undone the way that it was done so we're going to kind of go in reverse order here so we're slowly going to start to uh lift the limits on you know, two people or five people in groups at a time and increase that to, say, 10 or 20. And so we're really going to approach that social distancing uh, very cautiously and slowly start to lift that until we can get reliable testing, uh, fast testing, uh, and and, uh, uh, vaccine for it. So I think we're just going to kind of do everything in the reverse order in which it was kind of shut down. We didn't do it all in one step going from 100 to zero. We'll probably do it in reverse order going zero to 100. The last thing you want is to let everybody loose and realize that this thing isn't solved yet and then have to shut everybody back down again for two months or three months again. Mr. Shear, thank you very much for the time. And when you hear Mr. Trudeau say uh, this is not the time to be meeting in Parliament uh, on Monday and he's obviously not very much in favor of your idea of four meetings per week, he likes the idea of one. What's your response to Mr. Trudeau? Well, first of all, he's creating a, a, a false uh, worry. Uh, no political party is talking about having all 338 members of parliament in that chamber. Uh, we've already shown twice before that we can come together in smaller numbers, a uh, representative uh, group from every caucus, and that we can improve upon the legislation and the programs that liberals have brought forward. So our position is, you know, we started off asking for four. 
Uh, the government didn't want any. Uh, you know, we believe that, uh, that, that we, we were we were offering to be flexible and taking a look at three or even two. But we do believe that it's essential to have oversight on the government at this critical time. We're getting better results, better programs, and, and forcing them to be accountable for the mistakes that they have made. Uh, what, what is, what's your expectation? What's going to happen? Because the Green Party is suggesting you're grandstanding. Well, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I saw Elizabeth May's uh, comments where she was complaining about the fact that there was not a lot of room in the MP lounge uh, to, to spread out and, 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 uh, and relax. Uh, there, there are lounges on either side of the chamber uh, that MPs frequently use when the House is sitting for several hours a day. Uh, we're talking about a large chamber that was built for 338 people. Uh, we're talking about having less than 40 MPs in there. There are many entries and exits to that space and I am very confident that when we're talking about spending hundreds of billions of dollars in the next few months, when we're talking about the government's response, uh, keeping people safe, uh, determining where the supply chain for protective equipment and medical equipment is going to come from, uh, we need to get better decisions out of this government. And Parliament's already shown that we get better results when we meet and hold this government to account. And I believe that it is that it is essential that we provide that oversight during this crisis. So let's talk about what the reality is. We have uh, medical professionals that have been on this program many times. Uh, You speak to them as well, and uh, we're going to have more on this weekend, and they're very, very woefully short, dangerously short of PPE. Uh, And uh, I, I don't know how well we're doing as far as providing the supplies that are required, but... What's your assessment of that, and uh, what, again, is your assessment of the, the, the decisions made by the federal government as far as putting money into the hands of Canadians during this pandemic is concerned? Are they doing it properly, or are, they, are, there, are there gaps in their logic that you would uh, want to identify? Right. Uh, two very good points, and I'll deal with the medical equipment one first. Uh, the, we're very concerned. Uh, first of all, we found out this week uh, explosive evidence uh, that the government actually dumped uh, millions of pieces of equipment just months before this pandemic hit. Now, of course, no one could have known that this pandemic was going to happen, but there is a government department, public health, that is supposed to maintain stockpiles of equipment for the what-if scenario. And we learned this week that uh, this government cut funding to that program and actually eliminated the stock, the huge swaths of the stockpile. Uh, there was a gentleman in Regina who put a bid in for, he had a dumpster company and he put a bid in to help dispose of the equipment. So we went into this crisis shorthanded without an adequate supply because this government decided that it wasn't a priority to maintain that stockpile. Since then, we've asked uh, as early as, as early March about procuring new ventilators. Uh, the government said that uh, they were going to have a new strategy. And last Saturday, we were told that, that it's still going to be weeks away. So we still have grave concerns about our ability to get this uh, much-needed equipment very quickly. As it relates to providing programs and services, I want to preface my remarks by saying that we acknowledge that the government has to move very quickly and that the normal process to have months and months of, uh, of consultations and uh, meetings with stakeholders, that wasn't possible. So we are we are understanding of that, but we are still hearing from people who are falling through the cracks. There are still people who are saying, look, uh, I'm an owner-operator of a small business. I'm not eligible for any of the programs right now. I had a phone call with someone from a mining company 
who said that they don't really deal with revenue. Uh, it is more difficult to show that they should qualify for the wage subsidy based on revenue because mining companies often are very capital intensive in the front end and then pay off in the later years. So we're trying to work collaboratively with the government to address these uh, these gaps, but uh, it is getting frustrating that some of these fixes are, are taking weeks and weeks to, uh, to, to do. Yeah, they're talking about the equipment or the PPE having expired, but I, I, I'm not a medical person, so I don't know. But I, it would seem to me that if you don't have enough and you identify, you can identify you don't have enough and you're not replacing, then what's the expiry date really mean on an N95 mask? I mean, something is better than nothing, and if that's what it is, then it's expired by a few days or weeks or months. Why wouldn't you be uh, keeping it in, 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 in the system? That's just a, sort of my, my off the... Off-the-cuff question. Um, the, do you think we're working sufficiently? Do you think Canada is working sufficiently effectively with the United States? We have the announcement this morning the border is going to remain closed for another 30 days. Do you find that satisfactory? Is there something else that you think should have taken place? No, I do believe that that's the right call to, to, to keep the travel restrictions in place. We're seeing uh, explosive numbers coming out of several regions in the U.S. Uh, look, uh, we weren't, like all Canadians, we were outraged when uh, President Trump uh, seemed to indicate that he was going to uh, prevent much-needed supplies here from coming into Canada. These are supplies that were ordered, purchased, uh, paid for, that uh, with an integrated supply chain, parts move back and forth for, to, through each country. So, you know, it's it's been a little bumpy, but uh, overall I think that uh, there's a good level of cooperation, and and, uh, and I, I anticipate that will continue uh, going, going into the coming months. Okay, Mr. Scherer, a few weeks ago, the Liberal Party and the government, and Justin Trudeau particularly, wrote text into the federal pandemic relief legislation, which would have permitted the finance minister to tax and spend without oversight for 21 months, in effect, kicking the Canadian Constitution to the curb. You called the Liberals on it. So did the opposition parties, the other opposition parties. What do you say the Liberals were up to? And let's not forget that taxation without representation was the cornerstone of the American Revolution. I'm not suggesting anything here other than looking at a historic perspective. Uh, When you look back at that, what do you think they're up to? Well, I think it's just in their nature. You know, uh, it's like the the scorpion and the frog. They they can't help themselves. Uh, This government has shown that it does not like transparency and accountability. They've used their majority to shut down inquiries into scandals in the previous parliament. Uh, They refused to name a permanent auditor general to get to the bottom of some of the mismanagement uh, in in their own department. So I I think they, they looked at an opportunity. Uh, I think they, you know, they, they put an egregious clause in there that they were always willing to pull back. They still wrote themselves a lot of new powers in that in that bill and used the uh, you know the leverage that they had in the support of the Bloc of the Quad to to do that. We were able to get many uh, sunset clauses put in, so at the very least, many of these measures would be temporary. But it's uh, you know it's it, when Justin Trudeau says he admires the basic dictatorship of China, uh, it's always concerning when he looks for opportunities to give himself and his government more power. And the fact that now they're resisting so heavily a, a continuation of parliamentary oversight and accountability uh, is, is certainly very concerning. I have two questions for you, and we have one minute. China. When when I say China, you say what? I say uh, corrupt dictatorship, uh, communist human rights abusing, uh, not to be uh, trusted. Uh, and I think the world needs to rethink and re-evaluate uh, our relationship uh, with China, our dependency on them. And that's one of the things that we should be learning from this pandemic and uh, addressing for the next time. 
And when I say oil and gas sector and the energy sector, which provides, well, I think it's roughly 10%, isn't it, of our GDP, uh, what do you say? Because, you know, there's $1.7 billion now to clean up dormant oil wells, but is there enough being done for the uh, for the energy sector? I'm asking the question I know an answer to, but no. go ahead, please. Yeah, no, no it's really not enough. Uh, this government has crippled the oil and gas sector by canceling pipelines and bringing in new regulations. And now this pandemic is having a, another effect. When I think of the oil and gas sector, I think of the miracle of, uh, of, of that uh, ethical source of energy, the ability to get fresh fruits and vegetables trucked into Canada in the winter, uh, the life-saving plastics that are used in medical procedures, the hundreds of thousands of families who have jobs and can support their families from it. Uh, you know, and, and it drives me crazy when I see those. Uh, people who, who scapegoat that industry, who act as if it's something to be embarrassed about. Uh, the, the oil and gas sector, the, the, the innovation and products that come from it have, have improved the quality of life for all mankind, and it should be celebrated, not something uh, that is uh, apologized for. I hate to correct you, but it's people kind. <laughs> well, the political correct police can uh, send me a ticket if you like. <laughs> Each week, we have the opportunity and the privilege, really, to speak to Dr. Isaac Bogosh. At least I've, I've sort of make this a weekly thing. I kind of assume he's going to be with us. The man has a life and a family. Infectious diseases specialist from Toronto, scientist. He's uh, at the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital and really has become, uh, for many people, the voice in the face of uh, information on COVID-19 during this pandemic. Dr. Bogosh, thank you so much again for the time. And I'm not taking you for granted. I really appreciate it. Oh, and so do our listeners. That's very kind of you. Appreciate for for, uh, for you having me on again. I, I was just listening to you, and I, I feel like I have a family. I don't have much of a life. And the other point, even before we jump into this, is whoever's choosing your music on your show needs a raise. Every time I come on, I, I hear a new song, and I just think to myself, God, that's a good song. So whoever's picking those, kudos to them. Well, I, I'm glad you said that, because I just put together last week a series of 50 new songs for the show which are going to be incorporated. So when you're on next weekend, you'll hear even more good stuff. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, you've, uh, keeping us, keeping us, you've kept us up to date. You've been keeping us up to date on uh, the, the changes and the developments in the, in the chase for a, uh, a vaccine for COVID-19 and then as well medication and maybe antivirals that already exist to treat the, uh, the illness for those who've contracted it. Where are we on that? particular scale at this particular time great question so i mean certainly the research train is chugging along there are good studies that are being done that we will be able to have meaningful results from i think we'll start to see some early results from some of these studies in the next hopefully couple of weeks or so at least some interim studies all the data we've had to date i think people need to keep their BS detectors on high alert because some of the data we've had to date is, you know, not representative of anything that we would want to make meaningful changes because of these, the data that's available. They're sort of from not dubious studies, but just studies that don't answer the big questions. The studies that will answer these big questions are ongoing and uh, we'll hear some shreds of evidence from these soon. Uh, but, uh, but we don't have any good evidence yet. I just, just so people know, there is a coordinated response. This isn't an individual hospital doing it. These are, you know, 
huge research groups uh, in collaboration and coordinating across the country and coordinating internationally to recruit as many patients as possible so that when we have results, we can actually have some meaning behind them. Uh, heartbreaking uh, story, the heartbreaking aspect to this pandemic, and there are there are several, but the one that really strikes home is what's been happening to uh, people in long-term care facilities, the uh, the the older Canadians, and uh, by that I mean, you know, we've been hearing about people 80 years of age and older who are contracting this this virus and are experiencing tremendous difficulty. Don't have opportunity to see their families. Many many of them are dying. I think you told us last weekend that about is it 50 percent or even higher yeah. of the deaths in in Canada from COVID 19 is yeah. among the, the this this group of Canadians. Absolutely. Speak to that, please. Yeah, it's about 50. So about 50 percent of the deaths in Canada are in those in long term care facilities. 90 percent of the deaths in Canada are in those over the age of 60. Of course, it's higher, disproportionately higher in those over the age of 70 and 80. Uh, Obviously, it's just horrific watching this unfold and watching this infection tear through these facilities. Uh, Kudos to British Columbia for introducing some measures rather urgently to lower the probability of introducing this infection into long-term care facilities. What they did was they urgently uh, ensured that workers in these facilities could only work at one place rather than multiple places, reducing the risk that they would uh, transmit the infection from facility to facility. Uh, Ontario followed suit, and uh, now we have some federal guidelines some provincial guidelines and the implementation of these guidelines that will really, number one, reduce the risk of introducing the virus to these facilities, and number two, should the virus be introduced to these facilities, significantly reduce the risk that it is transmitted to the same extent. Will this be successful? I have no idea. I sure hope so, uh, because this is really accounting for a huge bulk of our cases and the, and death. So. That's well. That's driving a lot of our numbers up, unfortunately, and it's just awful to watch. And it's awful that this was allowed to happen. This this didn't happen overnight. This has been uh, in the making for for some time. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, uh, we've known that there have been care issues in long term care facilities for 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 forever. I mean, this has just been a major issue, and sadly, it takes. Um, an epidemic in Canada and a global pandemic to really highlight what these care issues are. And, you know, these issues go beyond um, the care for people in the long-term care facilities. They also talk about how we really treat people that work in the facilities as well, which, of course, contributes to the care that is being provided in these settings. Um, you know, it's hard. I think I should also mention that not all long-term care facilities are created equally. And, you know, some have had tremendous stop gaps in place to prevent the virus from being introduced. Uh, but, of course, we know some certainly are on the, for lack of a better word, the poor end of the spectrum and just don't have the resources available, the training, the personnel uh, and any of the and, and any of the like they're, they're just not enabled. They're not set up for success. Uh, hopefully, hopefully this is a huge wake up call. And, you know, after this epidemic, we don't just brush this under the rug again and can really care for uh, elder Canadians and the vulnerable populations a little bit better, or a lot better, actually. Absolutely. I just want to let our listeners know that if you have a question about COVID-19, about the pandemic, but specifically about COVID-19, and you'd like to put that question, pose that question to Dr. Bogosh, you can call us at 1-800-263-2428. So one 800 263 2428. Call us now 
and uh, we'll get you lined up for your question for Dr. Bogosh, 1-800-263-2428, question about COVID-19. Before we take the break and start to take the calls, Dr. Bogosh, I appreciate you doing that. Um, When I first saw the word, I thought, how in the name of good whatever, uh, am I going to learn how to pronounce this word? And now it flows off the tongue, not just for me, but everybody in, in, in the world almost, I would imagine. The hydroxychloroquine issue. Where do we? Where, it's six syllables. Where do we? Where do we stand with that now? What's happened with that? Yeah, I mean, so again, there's some really good studies that are looking at hydroxychloroquine as um, for in a, in a few different realms. One as a treatment for people with mild infection. So you know, it, it, like obviously, people who are in the intensive care unit are very different than those with mild infection. So can this help people who are not in hospital? But ha- and have mild infections. It's also being studied in people who are in the hospital who are sick enough to be in hospital, but not in the intensive care unit. So it's being studied in those environments. And, and, and interestingly, it's also being studied in those who are exposed to the virus, but don't actually have the virus. So can this drug be used as a prevention in, in those exposed? The answer is we don't know yet. Those, those studies are, are, are very well designed. They're recruiting patients. Uh, we will have excellent answers for that probably in two to four weeks. Um, some of the data that's emerged on this, like I said earlier, I think people really need to be very skeptical of the data, the data that shows perhaps it works, the data that shows perhaps it doesn't work. Hey, you know what? Rather than speculate on poor data, we're in a situation where we can actually make meaningful conclusions based on well-designed studies. Not all studies are created equally. You have to have the right number of people. You have to have a good control group. You have to have the right design of the study. It has to be conducted in an acceptable manner. And, you know, I totally appreciate that, you know, in the fog of war, you can sort of cobble together some data that may, may help people speculate on whether or not something is effective or not. But to really hold muster to really stand behind that those recommendations you need good quality data and a good quality study these are being done we will have answers another uh, drug that i think is really important to look at i'm fascinated and i can't wait to see the results is something called remdesivir uh this these studies are being conducted right now there's a industry sponsored study there's a non-industry sponsored study as well looking at the utility of that drug remdesivir uh, in COVID-19. And again, I'm open-minded. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't work. But let's actually take an objective view and look at well-designed studies to see the utility of that. And another drug, just one last one that I think is important to look at, uh, it's called uh, uh, lopinavir. Lopinavir. And it's mixed with another drug called ritonavir. Together, that's a brand name called Calitra. Uh, I think the, uh, the people put a nail in the coffin in this one too early. It was studied in in the intensive care unit, in the sickest of the sickest of the sick. And people, you know, it didn't really seem to make any difference. But, like, you got to ask yourself, is anything going to make a difference in, the, in that population? So now it's being looked at in, in less sick populations. And, again, I don't want to sway anyone one way or another because I don't have a clue if this is going to work or not. But I think there's some very good studies being conducted, and we will have a much better understanding in, in the next uh, few weeks. We're back with... Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease, a specialist in Toronto and scientist and uh, with uh, at Toronto General Hospital and the University of Toronto. And we're taking your calls for Dr. Bogosh about COVID-19. And let's start 
with Melanie in Toronto. Hi, Melanie. Go ahead, please. Hello. Thank you, Dr. Bogush, and to all of you out there who are helping us. And God bless you all and give you strength and courage to continue. Um, how different is this? What I'd like to know is how different is this a virus? What is the different mutation that I've been hearing, especially after listening to Dr. Fauci in the States had an interest in the lab in China and that they're very closed as to what, how they're revealing. Now, could we in North America get access, you as a scientist and a doctor, is China open uh, to have you and other researchers from the West go in and look exactly at what they've been doing there and Okay, how? Melanie, thank you. I get, I get the question, and I'm sorry to move you along, but I have to because we have time limitations. Dr. Bogosh, is, yeah. is China being all transparent or agreeable to having uh, visitors? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I know they've had the WHO uh, scientists and physicians there uh, on a very high-profile visit. I know there's a lot of collaboration between the U.S. and Chinese scientists. I mean, I'm not going to try to read too much into the question, but I think there has been some a few conspiracy theories floating around about, you know, was this released from a laboratory or not uh, right. in China? And, you know, I just sort of quell those. It's all uh, speculation, right? I mean, at yeah, this point, exactly. it's... But, I mean, and, and I, you know, there's been some high-profile scientists who are virologists. I'm not a, a laboratory virologist, but these uh, virologists who really look at the genetic footprints of science uh, of viruses and, and, and in a lab environment uh, have have pretty much quashed that idea so you know I, I appreciate that things float around on the internet but uh, but uh, the virologists that have been very public about this in the United States and Canada have have basically said no that that's not the case we uh, tomorrow let me take another call but tomorrow I want everybody to know the doctor uh, professor Urban Kotler is going to be our guest, the uh, former Solicitor General, Justice Minister for Canada, uh, Liberal Justice Minister, Solicitor General under Jean Chrétien, and then later. And uh, well, Professor Kotler is talking about uh, sanctions for Chinese uh, Communist Party leaders who delayed releasing information about COVID-19. And uh, I think that's been fairly much substantiated. Pete is in Vancouver. Pete, what's your question on COVID-19 for Dr. Bogosh? Yeah, I'm not sure the doctor can answer this question, but uh, I was under Let's the try. I was under the understanding that uh, Dr. Henry out here in BC made a ruling uh, two or three weeks ago that uh, uh, care workers couldn't move from from uh, facility to facility uh, to work. They had to could only work in one facility. Uh, my understanding is that that's still going on out here now. There's still Moving from facility to facility. All right, Pete, I thank you for the call. It's not really a call about COVID-19, but there's legislation now in Ontario. The Ontario government's made that impossible, Doug Ford, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, again, I'm not on the ground in British Columbia. I'm sitting in Toronto right now, but uh, there certainly was legislation that uh, people in long-term, we're talking about long-term care uh, facilities, would only work at one. And I think there were some issues with income because many people had to cobble together an income by working at several of these. And there was going to be income supplementation such that they could work only at one, but still maintain that same income. And it looks like many places in the rest of Canada are emulating that plan because it just seems like a smart plan. So we know yes, in Ontario that's going to happen uh, soon. And they were actually using a one-week I forget when the clock started. It might have been one or two days ago, but they said that would actually, the, the, the switch would flick in a week or so, and they okay. needed a week to put that together. But, yeah, good plan. Jim in Cassidy, B.C. Jim, what's your question for Dr. Bogosh on COVID-19? 
Oh, hi, guys. Um, I was just wondering, you know, I'm, I'd really like to support our restaurants at this time, you know, keep their, their businesses from, uh, from going under. But um, I'm kind of worried about that. I'm just wondering if there was a, an employee that had the virus un- unknowingly and was working with the food. Is it possible, doctor, to, to get the virus from that, from the food, or is it just in passing? Great question. So, yeah, I think the biggest risk in a restaurant setting would be, you know, no one's allowed to sit down and eat in in those restaurants. It's all uh, takeout and delivery. Your biggest risk would be if the person had COVID-19, they might have had it, got it on their hands, they handled the bags that it was put in, uh, and then you go touch those bags or touch that person's hands when you're t- taking it for uh, takeout. Yeah, the, I think the, the, the safe way to do this is, you know, it's okay to support local businesses. By all means, go for it. Um, if you do takeout or get delivery, take your food out of the bag, uh, maybe put it on your plate, throw out the bag or the containers, wash your hands, and then enjoy enjoy your meal. Uh, that's okay. a safe way to do it. Uh, former Entrepreneur of the Year in this country more than once and a uh, member of the Order of Canada. Ron, thanks for taking the time, and I'll, I'd like you to start doing this, with, with this if you wouldn't mind. Talk about your truckers. Talk about the men and the women who are in those trucks delivering what we need every day. Absolutely, Roy, and I must start by saying that we in the supply chain business, the the, the business of uh, transporting goods that you see in a pharmacy, a grocery store, and a big box store, are doing everything possible to keep the supply chain safe and consistent and and uh, void of, of shortages. And I must say, I would be remiss not to say this, kudos and applaud to the frontline supply chain workers, the truck drivers, the dispatchers, the administrators in the trucking business, and kudos to the Canadian Trucking Association, the Ontario Trucking Association, for working behind the scenes. Roy, uh, right now, the supply chain is safe, secure, and the shortages are spotty, inconsistent, and temporary. And let me tell you why, and there's some real real uh, advantages going on right now since march the 11th to right up until today april 18th most of the the uh, items that you see in the grocery store the big box store have come right off the line or out of the warehouse and the warehouses have been depleted uh the the shortages and what i mean by shortages that are inconsistent in spotties and i'm going to give you an example of that if you go into the grocery store and you like uh, a canned salmon you may not get your favorite brand but there will be canned salmon if you go into the grocery store and there's uh toilet paper you may not get your favorite brand of toilet paper but there will be toilet paper and what I mean by a, a barometer and a good signal right now, starting next week, we not only truck it, uh, but, but we warehouse it. We are starting next week to build inventory. That is a very good sign that the, the groceries will now be coming out of a storage, out of an inventory, rather than right off the line into a store shelf. So there's some really good signs. And and if you allow me, I'd like to tell you why uh, some of this is happening. Canadians are getting very smart, and they're planning their their time at the grocery store. Families are going to the grocery store 
less than they did before the pandemic and less when they did before March the 11th. I'll give you an example. Families might have gone pre-March uh, the 11th to the grocery store twice a week. Now they might go once a week or every 10 days and have mm-hmm. it planned with a list. Right. Knowing it's safer to go less than more to the grocery stores. Right. Ron, can I ask you this? How long is the supply chain? I've been wondering about that because you have fish that essentially starts obviously in the ocean and then uh, it is uh, you know, packaged frozen and it starts its its journey to wherever in Canada it ultimately is going to uh, be delivered or wind up. We have, uh, we have uh, fruits and vegetables that come from international destinations. How long can this supply chain be? And where do you, as a trucker in North America, where do you get involved? Do you get involved in the United States? Do you get involved in Canada? Do you get involved in both uh, scenarios? How does it work? We absolutely do. That is a great question. And one of the good things that has happened, the border has never been more efficient. And and this makes it uh, consistent. It makes it reliable. And when you go through the border, Roy, on both sides, coming into Canada, going out of Canada, in the United States, it's never been more efficient. That is to answer your question, how long is the supply chain? Mm-hmm. The supply chain is as long as the border continues to be efficient. Number two, as long as we keep our drivers safe and, and practice all the rules that are presented to us by Health Canada. Now, that's the very first thing. Kudos to the drivers. And, and the most important thing in the supply chain management is to keep our drivers safe. And we are doing, we are taking every precaution that you can imagine to keep the drivers safe. Secondly, keep the borders efficient. The borders right now have never been better. The questions, the delays are, are, are very, very minimal. So with the supply chain being very long, it's very important. Keep everybody safe, keep the borders efficient, and keep things moving. Ron, what about the issue of, uh, I understand driver safety, and I know you take that extremely seriously because that's who you are, that's what you do, and uh, this is is what we ultimately we all depend on because we need, go back to the beginning of our discussion, and, and you've told me this so many times over the years, everything is, is going to be on a truck somewhere along the line on its way to you. It'll be on a truck. So what about the issue of driver health? Um, safety, I understand. But is there? are you noticing at all that there's an issue with drivers becoming ill? Is that something that is, that is starting to impact or, or, or not so much at this point? Well, it's, it's not great. But it's it is a concern. Yes, have uh, have drivers reported ill? Have they uh, tested uh, negative? Yes, in fact, they have. But Roy, uh, safety first in trucking. Also, too, right. if, if you bought it, a truck brought it. <laughs> so safety first, whether there's a pandemic or not. Uppermost, paramount in the trucking industry is safety first. Now, of course. To, to follow all the, the proper Health Canada procedures, we need disinfectant. And, and you have a national show, Roy, and you have a huge audience, and I'm going to appeal to your audience right now. Kudos to all the distilleries that have retooled 
and they're making the disinfectant, anything from 62% to 82% alcohol proof, which is really important. But we're getting it in big quantities. We're getting it in 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 25 ounce bottles and 40 ounce bottles. And remember the old term when you went to the uh, the liquor store and you'd buy a 26 ouncer. Well, it was really a 25 ouncer. I, I I've never been to a liquor out, store. Roy. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, nah, I know you don't. <laughs> but but Roy, uh, right now I'm going to appeal to your national audience. We need those little plastic container bottles, anywhere from two ounce to eight ounce where we can effectively put these big jugs of, of uh, disinfectant that are being uh, pr- produced now by many distilleries across Canada because it's, it's very ineffective and very inefficient to be carrying around these 25-ounce or 40-ounce or even bigger than that. We need to find somebody that can make these little 2-ounce to 8-ounce bottles that we can put disinfectant so you need a supplier you need a supplier of these small these small containers yeah we need a manufacturer roy and that's why i appeal on your uh your national show the other thing too is we can appeal to the the shoppers and they're already making that adjustment but there's there's no need for panic buying there's no need for hoarding because if you do notice any shortages such as flour or, or items such as that, uh, it's, it's usually temporary, it's usually spotty, and it's usually, as I said okay. earlier, it might be uh, a shortage of your favorite brand, but you can get that item. Ron, we're, we're talking about, uh, about the government and government involvement, government assistance, government management. Are you finding that the... Um that you're that you're that you're receiving what you require uh, is government responsive to the needs of you, the trucker, the person who's delivering the goods to the to the consumer. That is a great question, Roy. Now I just want to start by saying running a small or medium sized business in Canada is one of the most difficult things you'll ever undertake. And uh, you know, under normal conditions pre pandemic. Right now, under these conditions, I must say the government at all levels, federal, uh, municipal, and, and uh, provincial, are making more decisions quickly than they have ever done in the history of Canada. There's, there's decisions now being made uh, daily, hourly, uh, and weekly that usually takes months and years so, but are, are you getting are you getting what you need when you need it, or are you getting it uh, after after you required it? Well, let's say this. Let's thank the OTA, uh, the media professionals such as yourself, electronic and print, the accountants, and the governments because they they've rolled out many programs. Mm-hmm. But it takes somebody like the OTA or or professional accountants to interpret these programs. Now, there's two that have been our oxygen, Roy. They're the, the very, very important oxygen to small and medium-sized business. The wage subsidy program, uh, the 75% wage subsidy program, which really helps because our costs go up 
considerably in 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 a pandemic. The I was thinking is, about that. Is the loan there's there's a loan available right now, and we're just getting the interpretation and and how it works. You know, it's one thing to make a rule; it's another thing to get the interpretation. Yeah, well, I mean, we heard today that people are going to have to pay income tax on the serve of benefits they're going to be getting, and that's going to surprise. A few people. I guess the government's also always going to want its taxes. Ron, what do you need most? What is the small business community, particularly those who are involved in any way, shape, or form, with what you're doing, and that is that is taking care of and participating in the supply chain? What is the thing you need most? Uh, three things. Number one, partisan part, uh, politics. Set it aside. Partisan party politics is the ruination of this country. These politicians have to unite and get together because you know uh, roy true character of people comes out under adversity and and you know uh, often people have told me that's a uh, ron foxism but partisan politics has yeah, to be understood. marked right now number two uh wage subsidy the wage subsidy is vital Let's roll it out. Let's let's uh, get the people involved. Let's get the administrators involved, and let's get the the money into the hands of the small and medium sized business. The other because they needed the they needed yesterday, right? Yes, they did. Yes. Now the other one, the loan, Roy. Uh, we understand, and we haven't got a final interpretation. But if it's true, uh, there's a there's a loan opportunity for small and medium sized businesses of forty thousand dollars that does not have to be repaid until 2022. And if mm-hmm. you pay it uh, by December 2022, $10,000 is forgiven. Okay. Roy? Look, Ron, we've got a minute here. I have to yes. ask you this question. Uh, we talked about this before, and I spoke with a, a guest uh, economist earlier on the show. We have forever in this country laid uh, obstacles in the way, in the path of business being able to operate th- across the country without, without, without provincial governments getting in the way, without regulations getting in the way, uh, without borders getting in the way. Have things eased up as far as that is concerned? Can you do what you need to do to get the goods to the people who need them without being caught up in red tape and regulation? They've eased up considerably, Roy. And, and you know what? It's easy to stand back and be critical. I am not critical of the federal, provincial, and municipal government during this pandemic. They're making decisions. Roy, every once in a while, they make a decision where we have to give them a mulligan. But they're making decisions the way it should be all the time. They're making it. So you're not, you don't have a truck idling somewhere, a bunch of trucks idling somewhere full of goods that people need, and you're saying, damn it, I'm caught up in regulation there. That's not happening now. No, that is not Good. happening. Good. That is not happening. We're Fox, I gotta, I've got, I'd, I'd love to keep talking, but you know how the clock is. It, it always gets us, right? I know, Roy. Thank, Thank you, my you. friend. And, and listen, kudos to you professionals in the media that are keeping us so well informed. Thank Thank you. you for you professionals in the media. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 